you. It's so nice of you all to come on this beautiful moonlit night. And thank you, Jody, for that eloquent introduction. I'm very glad to be back at the Vermont Studio Center, even though I can't remember precisely when I was last here. It made an indelible impression on me. Um, I went to, um, thinking about Robert Louis Stevenson, last week I um, went to hear Stephen and Owen King read. Um, from their jointly written new novel, um, Sleeping Beauties. And uh, the reading was held in a church that was absolutely filled with uh, an audience whom you don't normally see at readings. Um, <laughs> I don't think I need to describe them in great detail, but there was a huge, very high percentage of baseball hats. But at one point, Stephen King was talking about reading, and he said... He was brought up by his mother, a single parent, and um, she would read to him and his brother, but she just read to them whatever she was reading. So she would read them Agatha Christie, and um, Earl Stanley Gardner was another one he mentioned. Um, and then he described how one evening when he was about eight or so, his mother was out on this little porch outside their flat um, reading and he and his brother went out and said read to us read to us and she said I don't know if you'll like it because it's scary and his brother said oh no please don't and Stephen said yes yes and um, what she read to them there is a point to all this what she read to them was from uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and she read the scene in which some of you may remember Hyde who is the monster is striding through the streets of London in all his glory and a small child gets in his path and he just tramples over her and then he turns around and tramples over her again and there's a sentence which King quoted which says something like you could hear all the bones in her body breaking and he was saying yes yes <laughs> um, he said most people come to horror early um, <laughs> I just want to tell you a little bit about how I came to write Mercury, which seems particularly germane in light of recent events. In 2009, I was a guest columnist for the Boston Globe. I had to write a weekly column for every week for six weeks. So, which was harder than, I, harder than I'd expected. So I wrote a column about... Um, gardening and you know about how much I liked begonias and maybe six people sent me emails saying we like begonias too and then I wrote another column about paying my taxes and about six people wrote to me saying wonderful you pay your taxes we do too and, and my accountant wrote to me actually praising me so that that was reassuring and I was searching for another topic when um, there was a massacre in Binghamton, New York. Uh, 14 people died, including the perpetrator. And in reading about that terrible event, one thing that stood out for me was that the man who had done this was a fairly recent immigrant to the States. 
but despite being a fairly recent immigrant, he had known how to get a semi-automatic weapon, how to get a ammunition, how to get a bulletproof vest, etc. And um, I, who had at this point been an immigrant for several decades, had no idea how to do these things. So I decided to write a column about trying to buy a gun in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the good news is that it does turn out to be surprisingly difficult. Um, you have to take a gun safety course, and if you pass, then you write to the chief of police explaining your reasons for buying a gun. So I wrote my column. It was mostly about my gun safety course. And um, the day it was published, I got maybe 120, 130 emails. Almost all of the writers were men, and almost all of them took me to task. And um, another group of people, happily much smaller, uh, took the trouble to telephone my home answering machine and leave messages, which also took me to task. Um, one man said, you're just a Scottish immigrant. You're lucky there are armed Americans ready to take care of you. So I realized I had touched a nerve, and that interested me. It, it interested me very much. But I was deep in writing another novel, and I was not about to, to swerve. Um, a couple of years later, I still remembered this incident, and I was meeting with a friend for a drink. Um, uh, like me, Neil grew up in Scotland. Uh, like me, he married an American. Um, and after his second glass of wine, he began to tell me how um, he had a couple of weeks before our meeting, he had, for some reason, searched the boot, the the trunk of the car, um, and um, his car, and he had found a gun. And his wife had bought it legally, but she had, for whatever reason, not mentioned it to him. And he had found that distressing. Um, they had met at an anti-war demonstration, and um, very poignantly he said to me, um, we used to believe the same things, but we don't anymore. And that remark really registered with me. I started thinking about this different kind of infidelity. I mean, you know, we have all these great adultery novels, but what about that kind of infidelity when you share a core of beliefs with another person and they abandon those beliefs without consultation, without telling you. It struck me as profoundly interesting. And Mercury grew out of some fusion of those two incidents. Um, some spark was ignited. Um, it's a, Mercury's about a white heterosexual couple um, who live outside Boston. The man is an optometrist. He's recently lost his father. The woman used to work in mutual funds, and she now runs a, a riding stable. And one day, a magnificent horse named Mercury arrives at the stables. And I'm going to read several short sections, um, which I've 
both edited and rearranged um, in order to read. Um, so I hope it isn't too confusing. And I hope by zigzagging around, you'll, you'll, I'll keep your interest. And I should say that I began the novel when the political firmament had different, had different constellations than it does now, else I would have named my characters differently. My mother called me, oh, I should say I'm reading in the part of grumpy Scottish Donald. Um, um, my mother called me after a favourite uncle who was in turn called after a Scottish king. Donald III was 60 when he first ascended the throne in 1003. He went on to reign twice, briefly and disastrously. As a child, I hated my name. Other children sang, Donald, where's your trousers in the playground? But as an adult, I've come to appreciate being named after a valiant late bloomer, a man who sees the day. Of course, most Americans, when I introduce myself, are thinking not about Scottish history, but about a cartoon duck. They are surprised when I tell them that a Scot invented penicillin and that James VI, for whom the Bible was so gloriously translated, was a keen amateur dentist. I used to believe that in my modest fashion I was contributing to the spread of Scottish values, thrift, industry, integrity. I have my own business, a full-service optometrist in a town outside of Boston. More than most people, I have tested the hypothesis that the eye is the window to the soul. Give us a child until the age of seven and he is ours for life, the Jesuits famously claimed. So perhaps it was my first ten years in Scotland that inoculated me against American opt optimism. I am pleased by an average day and I know I'm neither great nor awesome. What's more, I don't believe other people are either, although I'm too polite to say so. Before I started my business, I practiced as a surgeon, which taught me precision and humility. I used to wonder if there was anything that I loved as much as my wife Viv loved her horses. I mean, besides the handful of people for whom I would stop, stand in front of a speeding train. At university, I smoked grass and took enough coke once and ecstasy twice to know that for me, drugs are not the doors of perception. I play tennis, I garden until it gets too hot, I read mostly Scottish history. But for the last four years, both hobbies and friends have taken second place to my father. I suppose my equivalent to horses is eyes, those pearls, those vile jellies. From the moment we studied them at university, I was fascinated by the intricate mechanism, by the emotions we attribute to the eyes of others, the visions we claim for our own. When I first saw a painting by Joseph Albers, I stared and stared at the yellow square within the green square, how had he persuaded the colours to shift and tremble at their margins? 
In childhood, I was blessed with excellent vision. Then, within a few months of my 18th birthday, I quite suddenly found myself squinting at street signs and blackboards. Now, I wear a pair of elegant progressives that I reach for first thing in the morning and part from last thing at night. I scarcely recognize myself without them. Viv, so far, has 20-20 vision in both eyes. One of these days, I used to tell her, you'll grow up. I have to read this section so that I can do my stupid Helen Keller jokes. I wish I did not have to bring Jack into this story, but without him, there would be no story. Until three years ago, when retinitis pigmentosa rendered him legally blind, he was my patient. The last time I checked, the vision in his good eye was 10 to 200. What is visible to a normal person at 200 feet, he can only see at 10. He can make out the burners on his stove and sort white socks from dark ones. His bad eye detects only the brightest lights. I've had to break grim tidings to many people, but telling Jack, a man my age, a man in love with books, he teaches classics at the university, that nothing could be done about his failing vision was particularly hard. I was tiptoeing around the subject when he interrupted. Forgive me, Doc, he said, but the short version is, I'm going blind. Farewell, the daylight world. Farewell, the winged chariot, a.k.a. Apollo. He was my last patient of the day, and we had walked together to the nearest bar where we drank scotch, and he told me how Odysseus finally, by guile and strength, gets rid of the suitors. As he spoke, he kept his vivid blue eyes fixed on my face. Even knowing what I did, it was hard to believe how little he could see. A few weeks later, I invited him to dinner, and a few weeks after that, at his insistence, I took him to meet my father, who was at that time still living at home. They had enjoyed a lively conversation about the Adirondacks, where each had hiked in better days. Jack was one of the few people I had kept in touch with during the awful last year of my father's life. His apartment was on the edge of the campus, <coughs> Excuse me, and it was easy to drop in on the way to and from the children's various lessons. The week after Viv and I argued about private schools, I stopped by while our son Marcus was swimming. Screw tops, Jack said, opening the bottle I'd brought. God's gift to the blind. He poured two glasses of Merlot and led the way to the sofa. I asked about his book. That summer, he had begun to write about blindness, his own and the wider history of the condition. I'm working on a topic near to my heart, he said cheerfully, namely, what I find most annoying about sighted people. Number one is people asking if I want to touch their faces, to which the answer is, Christ no, stay away from me with your Helen Keller fantasies. The couple of times I tried it, I could only make out major features, noses, eyebrows. Cheers. Cheers. I clinked my glass to his. Maybe it only works if you've been blind from birth. Maybe it only works if you're a kinky person who likes to feel faces. Another thing that drives me crazy, 
he was warming to his subject, is when I ask someone where I am, and instead of telling me, they say, where do you want to be? As if they could transport me by magic carpet. Let me show you something. Jack's apartment consists of three large rooms. The bedroom and the living room open off the hall, and the kitchen, which is large enough to eat in, opens off the living room. He got up and, carrying his almost full wine glass, stepped around the coffee table, crossed the room, skirted his desk, and disappeared into the kitchen. He came back again without spilling a drop. Okay, he said, close your eyes, you do it. I closed my eyes, picked up the glass, took two steps, and stopped. Still with my eyes closed, I said, I can't. Give me your glass. With a glass in each hand, Jack took only a couple of steps before he too stopped. One glass, yes. Two glasses, no. I need one hand free to see. And, and Jack, of course, is talking about what the blind call facial vision, that sixth sense that blind people develop that enables them to sense obstacles or whatever in their environment. But you need a free hand, apparently, to do this, which I think is fascinating. Um, in in the, my book, The Hidden Machinery, I talk a lot about rather grand literary influences like E.M. Forster and Virginia Woolf and Shakespeare. Um, so I thought in, uh, it would only be honest to read a chapter that introduces another major literary influence. Um, and I should just tell you that before Viv worked at the stables, um, she lived with her friend Claudia. They shared a flat um, before she married Donald. Once on a plane, I read a quiz in a woman's magazine. How well do you know your partner? Brief scenarios were described and the respondent asked to pick among possible answers. After a lovely dinner, the waitress forgets to put the second round of cocktails on the bill. Does your partner, one, pay and sneak away? Two, point out the error. Three, point out the error and ask for free desserts. Until a year ago, I could confidently have answered such questions about Viv. She was impetuous, ambitious, staunch in her left-wing beliefs, and devoted to animals. Here is my evidence, four examples so specific that despite everything, they still stand firm. One, the June after we met, Viv and I were walking to a restaurant near the seaport in Boston when we spotted the ferry to Provincetown. Before I could protest, she was pulling me up the gangway. Everything will work out, she insisted, and it did. We found a hotel, bought underwear and toiletries, and had a sunlit day and starry night. Two, when our son Marcus was only three months old, Viv had gone back to work and taken on extra, an extra project to secure promotion. The following year, to maintain her visibility, she attended conferences in Scottsdale, Cincinnati, San Diego, and Montreal. Three, 
In 2008, she spent every Sunday in New Hampshire campaigning for Obama and several nights a week telephoning reluctant voters. Four, once when we were having a drink on the porch of the apartment she shared with Claudia, a mouse had appeared and started running in slow, tipsy circles. It's sick, Viv exclaimed. Can't you help it? With what? I held up my empty hands. Besides, I don't know about mice. While I sat down again, she bent over the tiny creature, murmuring, There, there, you'll be all right. She called Claudia for advice and insisted on watching over the mouse's last hour with an old towel and a saucer of water. So in answer to the question, an animal is in pain, would your partner, one, drop everything to help, two, say, I'm not a vet, and drive on, three, urge someone else to help? I would have said one, unhesitatingly. But since Mercury's advent, my sense of knowing Viv was under siege. A battlement fell here, a turret there. A major stretch of wall fell when, not long after lunch with my mother, Viv asked me to go to the stables to help Claudia with Nimble. They were sending him to the vets to be euthanized. Viv had a doctor's appointment that day, and the Brazilian men who worked at the stables had a family birthday. You don't need to do anything, she assured me. Just offer moral support. I rearranged my appointments and drove out to the stables. A trailer hitched to a faded black truck was standing near the indoor arena. As I got out of my car, Claudia appeared in the doorway of the barn leading a grey pony. She thanked me for coming. Nimble nudged me, searching my pockets. Poor beast, I thought, showing him my empty hands. It was almost cold enough for snow. Come on, Nimble, said Claudia, leading him towards the trailer. It was surely no different from many others he had entered during his long life, but 20 feet away he came to a halt. Neither tugging nor coaxing would budge him. When Claudia changed directions, heading for the water trough, he limped along obligingly, but as soon as she turned back to the trailer, he stopped. I could see the whites of his eyes. What's the problem? said Claudia, offering a carrot. Nimble ate the carrot, but did not move. I felt the first drops of rain. A man wearing a shiny blue jacket got out of the truck. Step up, he said, and slapped Nimble's rump. The pony gave a feeble kick. While Claudia went to fetch some oats, the man tugged at the halter and swore. Nimble, I was by now entirely on his side, put his ears back and stood firm. At the sight of Claudia and the bucket of oats, he nickered, but he knew better than to take a single step. Still swearing, the driver returned to the cab. I stepped over to stroke Nimble's ne neck. Can't he stay, I said to Claudia. He's not doing any harm. I'll pay for his hay. Doesn't he deserve a good retirement? Donald, she said, his kidneys are failing. Really, this is the kindest way. How can this be kind? He's terrified. Let's phone Viv. I'm sure she'd want him to stay. Claudia put her hand on my arm. The shot will calm him, she said. Even 
line as she spoke, the driver reappeared. With no preparation, the whole thing completely unsanitary, he rammed a needle into Nimble's shoulder. Nimble reared half-heartedly. Claudia hung on to the halter until he was again standing quietly. While she and the driver argued about vets, his head sank lower. I stood watching out of a sense of duty. At last, Claudia declared him ready. Nimble lurched up, lurched up the ramp, paused on the threshold, and stumbled into the trailer. All of this was harrowing, but worse, much worse, was Viv's reaction when I described the gruesome scene. He didn't know what was happening, she said. He absolutely did. He knew that horse trailer was his death sentence. I felt like an accomplice to murder. I would have bet $10,000 a month of my life that my kind, animal-loving wife would agree with me. But like Claudia, she was adamant. Nimble was old, he was ill, he was fit only for dog food and glue. At some point, the woman who watched over a dying mouse had disappeared. I had missed her departure. And I had missed something else, something even more crucial. I have never believed I was exceptional, but Viv secretly, persistently, believed that she was destined for greatness. When her attempts to compete on Dow Jones failed, when she found herself 37 years old with two beautiful children, a devoted, if grieving, husband, a pleasant home, dear friends, and a job she loved, she felt as if her life were over. Everything tasted of ashes until Mercury arrived. Um, I'm now going to read a short chapter from Viv's point of view, so you have to picture me as no longer grumpy and Scottish, but buoyant and American, which is much harder for me. Um, and she's, in effect, in imagination, talking to her husband, to, to Donald. I never did tell you what happened with nutmeg. After my first year at Yale, I came home for the summer and to my mother's dismay got a job at the stables. How is this going to help your resume, she asked. But I had a different resume in mind. I was going to train Nutmeg and enter him in a three-day event in early August. We didn't have to win first prize, but if we placed, it would be a sign. After I graduated, I'd figure out how to ride full-time. Claudia was studying in Spain that summer, and I had no one to talk to about my training program. Nutmeg was very flexible, good at dressage, and a bold jumper with plenty of stamina, but he was erratic. The owner of the stables, Elsa, warned me at several times not to ride him too hard, but mostly I worked on my own. I read books about champions, watched films, kept notes of each day's training. We won rosettes in several small competitions. We placed in show jumping. Nutmeg learned to go into a trailer and grew used to crowds. I was training myself, too. In the evenings when it was cooler, I went running. My friends complained they never saw me. The three-day event was 30 miles from Ann Arbor. The first day, Nutmeg and I were on the road by five. Just outside town, 
a rabbit darted in front of the truck. I remember the scene so clearly. I didn't want to hit it, but I didn't want to break in case Nutmeg lost his footing. I was still hesitating when at the last second the rabbit swerved to safety. From then on, everything flowed. I found a place under a tree to park the trailer. Nutmeg wasn't spooked by the journey, and he stood quietly while I braided his mane and brushed his tail. We rode twelfth and placed first. Riding him into the arena to collect the rosette was one of the great moments of my life. Elsa had said more than once that events are one on dressage. Driving back to the stables, I wondered if there was any way I could bring Nutmeg to New Haven. The next day was cross-country. I'd worked hard at the precision of dressage, but this was what I loved, galloping at top speed, jumping the different kinds of jumps. It had rained in the night and the course was sloppy, but Nutmeg's boldness served him well, mine too. We were both covered in mud as we crossed the finish line with a clear round and no penalties. I rubbed him down, singing his praises. Next day's stadium jumping seemed like child's play. Back at the stables, Elsa was waiting. Hurrah for you, she said when I told her about the cross-country. But as I backed Nutmeg out of the trailer, her eyes narrowed. Stand still, she said. She ran her hands up and down his legs. His near fore foreleg was hot. Maybe he'd fractured the pastern. But he's not lame, I protested. He cleared every jump. Hopefully I'm wrong. Cold, hold, cold hose his leg tonight and see how he is in the morning. I kept protesting. How could this have happened? I had taken the best possible care of him. Elsa gave me a pinched smile. It's probably been coming on for a while, she said. You've been training him awfully hard. I ran cold water over his leg for half an hour, bandaged it and sprinkled butte into his grain. Butte is a kind of painkiller you give to horses, but you can't give it close before they're, uh, they're doing an event or a competition. Um, that night, I hardly slept. In the last few weeks, Nutmeg had had a couple of off days, but there'd always been a reason. He was stiff from the previous day's training. He'd hit a rail. Now I remembered those days, and I remembered the hill where he'd stumbled in the mud and I had urged him on. Perhaps it was then he had hurt himself, or at the last jump, where he'd taken off awkwardly and landed hard. I was back at the stables at 4 a.m. His pastern was cool to the touch. It was nothing, I told myself, a passing tenderness, a little bump. I drove north as if he were made of glass. I mustn't push him, I told myself. Better to be a few seconds slower than to knock down a rail. But when I led him out of the trailer in broad daylight, he was walking gingerly. I ran cold water over the leg again. I borrowed a bandage. If it hadn't been illegal so close to the event, I would have given him more butte. I only needed to ride him for ten minutes. What's up with your horse? The woman in the next trailer asked. He bumped himself, I said. He'll be fine. By 9am there was no doubt. Not Meg was lame. 
I tortured myself by watching the jumping we would have won easily and spent the rest of the day loitering around the show. I brought Nutmeg back after dark and left a note for Elsa. I quit. If I saw her, I knew I'd start yelling. Why hadn't she saved me from overtraining Nutmeg? Spill, spelled out the dangers. We'd been so close, I'd rather we'd fallen at a jump, gone down in a blaze of glory than this pathetic mishap. The next day, I got a job at the photocopy centre. I spent the last weeks of August running machines and flirting with students. The next summer, I followed Claudia's example and went to Spain. I was in a library in Barcelona when an email came from Elsa. We put Nutmeg to sleep yesterday, she wrote. The fracture in his pastern had worsened until they'd had no choice. I'm sure you weren't to blame, she added which could only mean I was. For more than a dozen years, I kept my failed ambitions in a tightly sealed box. But when we moved out of Boston and I started working at the stables, the box began to open. I gave up on becoming a CEO and once again pictured myself training horses, winning competitions. And... Uh, the last section I'm going to read is back with, with Donald and I couldn't bear to tell you earlier that not only do I have a character called Donald, I have another character called Hillary. I'm a sort of, I'm a sort of political clairvoyant or idiot savant, I'm not quite sure. But um, uh, yeah, again, I would have changed it if I could. Um, Hillary is Mercury's owner. She boards him at the stables. She inherited the horse from her brother and she doesn't want to ride him herself but remains very attached to him. And um, somewhat to Donald's, I don't know, uh, incredulity, um, Hillary and Jack, the blind man I read about earlier, have become a couple. Um, as Jack said, um, lo, the blind are not celibate. Um, as a schoolboy in Edinburgh, I learned the rhyme. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe. The logic of the poem, the idea that a small thing I did in our house on our street might make a large difference in some distant place, fascinated me. Even now, I cannot list all the factors that contributed to the events of that night in early March, when, as swiftly as if someone had severed my optic nerve, my life changed. The snow, Viv, Mercury, Jack, Hillary, my well-meaning mother, me, we all played our parts. And there were others, Claudia, her boyfriend, her great-aunt, of whose roles I only learned later. My mother was worried about my marriage. In an effort to give Viv and me what she thought we needed, time alone together, she invited the children to go bowling on Saturday. They would stay the night and on Sunday she would take them to the Museum of Science in Boston. I did not want to spend another evening listening to Viv talk about Mercury, but I dutifully made a reservation at a nice restaurant. Perhaps later she would turn to me. I just got home from taking the children to my mother's when, when Viv phoned. 
One of the ponies, Samson, had colic. She was going to walk him for another hour and see how he progressed. Why don't you use the reservation with Jack, she urged. I don't know when I'll be home. My first impulse, if only I'd acted upon it, was to get some take-out barbecue, open a bottle of beer and watch bad television. But that seemed too pathetic. I rang Jack. Let me ask Hillary, he said. I had forgotten that Jack now came with Hillary. On the drive to Il Giardino, I lectured myself about trying harder with her. Perhaps she'd made the same resolution. From the moment she kissed my cheek and thanked me for suggesting this, I could tell we were in for a jolly evening. We ordered several appetizers, and Jack posed as the blind food critic with the amazing taste buds. This baby octopus comes from the cold waters of Labrador. Note how it embraces the marinade. Though actually, he added, research shows that we blind have no better sense of taste or smell than you sighted. We just pay more attention. So what do you think the shrimp is so what do you think the shrimp is spiced with? Hilary asked. Coriander? Perhaps a touch of fennel? Donald and I need to close our eyes too. We did and made silly guesses. Jack joked about the challenge of fancy restaurants, finding your portion on the plate. They described the film they had watched the night before. And I should say, there's an amazing person on YouTube, the blind film critic, who does really wonderful film reviews, um, if you get a chance to listen to him. Um, they described the film they'd watched the night before. Hillary said that if Jack knew the setup, he could follow most of what was happening. In fact, he often figured out the plot before she did. He wasn't distracted by trivial details like clothes and hair. We were on our second bottle of wine when a text came from Viv. Samson okay, going to bed, Viv. I passed on the news and we raised our glasses to Samson. The ultimate, the ultimate advertisement for the importance of hair, Hillary joked. Not until we were having dessert did she bring up mercury. One afternoon, while she had the flu, she had dreamed about him. You know how some dreams are so real, she said. They seem like they've just happened or are just about to happen. I was back in Ontario with my brother Michael. Mercury had escaped and we were searching for him along the railway line that led into town. Slowly, as if she were again walking along the railway tracks, she described the scene. Michael was very calm. He had a stick he was clicking against the rails. I suppose that was Jack's cane. But I kept feeling that Mercury was in danger, that he needed our help. Then I heard the rumbling of a train and suddenly we were both running, stumbling over the sleepers, trying to reach him. I woke up feeling wretched. I haven't been to see him in weeks. I said Viv was taking good care of him. I'm sure she is, said Hilary, but I wish we could go there now. Michael believed that at night we can hear what animals are thinking, and vice versa. We can, I said. We can go there now. I have a key. 
Somehow, as we drank the last of the wine, the three of us agreed that this was the best possible plan. We finished our creme brulee and chocolate bread pudding. I insisted on paying the bill. A month later, my credit card statement showed we had spent $270. I drove us to my office, and while Hillary and Jack waited, I collected the keys from the back of the drawer. When I returned to the car, Hillary had put on one of the CDs my sister had sent me for Christmas. She and Jack were sitting in the back, were in the back, sitting as close as the seatbelts permitted. This is so nice of you, Donald, she said. I feel as if I'm going on a mission with my friends, Jack said. When I was a kid, almost all our bad behaviour started with a car at night. My bad behaviour occurred on foot, said Hillary. Outside of town, the sky was filled with high white clouds. I said that they made me think of Russia. Or Ontario, Hillary said, somewhere with large skies and low temperatures. Out of habit, I parked in my usual place behind the trailers, another lost nail. As we approached the door, the security lights came on. I remembered the code, the key worked, we were inside. I turned on the lights and the two rows of stalls stretched out before us, the main one by the bank of lockers and the other further from the door with the stalls on either side. I led the way towards the latter where I had found mercury on New Year. Jack commented on the smell and Hilary said, in five minutes we won't notice it. Mercury was in a different stall near the middle of the row. He was standing at the back wearing two rugs, one slung over the other. Do you think he's asleep? whispered Hilary. Neither Jack nor I answered. Mercury, she said, and then again, louder, Mercury. At the sound of his name, he looked up, his dark eyes gleaming. Hilary stepped forward and slid open the door. Jack put his hand on my arm. We followed her inside and I slid the door closed. Hilary reached out to stroke Mercury's neck. Are you awake? Good boy. Were you dreaming of nice pastures and sunny days? We're here to see you. Jack and I need your blessing. Mercury shifted from hoof to hoof. She continued to talk and I led Jack over to stand beside her. We were all slightly drunk, Hilary and Jack perhaps more than slightly, yet the occasion had a solemn feeling. None of us mentioned her brother Michael, but it was clear that Hilary was trying to lay her regrets about him to rest. Mercury gave a half snort, half sigh. Hilary took Jack's hand and placed it on the horse's neck. Talk to him, she said. Mercury, said Jack, you fucking amazing horse, you emperor of quadrupeds, you king of equines. You represent what's noblest in us. No, that's not right. You embody what's noblest in us. If you're thinking tonight, think noble thoughts. If you're dreaming, dream noble dreams. Mercury snorted again more vigorously and Jack stepped back. I've asked Hillary for her hand in marriage, he went on, raising his own hand. 
hope you give permission. We'll get married in a field so you can... There was a loud, precise, frightening noise. Mercury reared in a mad scramble of hooves. Hilary screamed. Jack stumbled against the wall of the stall and fell to the ground. In the confusion, neither Hilary nor I stopped to think about the dangers that lay outside the stall. Our only thought was to get away from Mercury, to get Jack away. Somehow we dragged him into the corridor. On all sides, the other horses were whinnying, kicking, screaming. Viv had told me that horses scream in anger or in pain. Now I heard the sound for the first time. As soon as the stall door was closed, I dropped to my knees. I knew little about gunshot wounds, but I had to make sure Jack didn't bleed to death. Where are you hurt, I said. Can you tell me? My arm, he whispered, or my shoulder. Beside me, Hilary, also on her knees, was crying. What happened? My God, did someone shoot us? We've got to get him to the hospital. I need to make sure he's not bleeding. Mercifully, Jack fainted as I tried to get his arm out of his jacket. In the dim light, I saw that the wound was bleeding, steadily, but not furiously. I stood up with the thought that I could use a wheelbarrow to get him to the car. And then, at the end of the row of stalls, in the gloom, something moved. Viv was standing by the last stall, holding a black object in both hands. In less than a heartbeat, less than a saccade, I understood that Viv, the woman I loved, my wife of almost a decade, was holding a gun, and that she was pointing it in my direction. Our eyes met for a brief, appalling moment. Then she lowered the gun and stepped back into the shadows. Hilary noticed nothing. All her attention was on Jack. With her help, I hoisted him into a wheelbarrow. We hurried along the corridor, she steadying him, me pushing, Jack groaning. At the door, I ran to get the car. Between us, we lifted him into the back seat. Then we were spinning away over the snow. The CD Hillary had put in before was still playing. Give me bread and give me honey. Fill my wallet and fill my boot. I did not think to turn it off. Jack kept groaning. You'll feel better soon, Hillary said. We'll be at the hospital soon. I love you. I drove as fast as I could, using the horn ruthlessly when we reached traffic. The alcohol I'd consumed made everything vivid and ferocious. I could have lifted a car off a baby, climbed a burning building. All three of our lives, not to mention those of my wife and children, were at stake. Thank you. Thank you.